You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Louise Erdrich. This program originally aired in 2008. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. ...of their roughest memories and they'd end up crying into their beer. So it is. People's emotions often turn on them. Geraldine drove him to fiddling contests where he won prizes of the cheap sort given at local or statewide contests. Engraved plaques, small tin loving cups. He placed these on a triangular scrap of shelf high in one corner and never dusted them. When his niece came by, she'd play with him and they came apart and had to be re-glued or revealed patches of corrosion. He didn't care. He was, however, somewhat fanatical about his violin. He treated this instrument with the reverence we accord our drums, which are considered living beings and require from us food, water, shelter, and love. They have their songs, which are given to their owners in dreams, and they must be dressed according to their personalities. So with this violin, Shemengua fussed over it, stroked it clean with a soft cotton hanky, kept it in a special cupboard. His case was lined with velvet that was faded by time from a heavy blood red to a watery streaked violet. I don't know violins, but his was thought to be exceptionally beautiful, and its sound was certainly human and exquisite. It was generally understood that the violin was old and quite valuable. So, when Geraldine came to trim her uncle's hair one morning and found Shemengua still in bed with his feet tied to the posts, she glanced at the cupboard even as she unbound him and was not surprised to see the lock smashed and the violin gone. After his fiddle was stolen, Shemengua quickly began to fail, and I had not realized how much I loved to hear him play, sometimes out in his scrubby back lawn and other times just for groups of people who gather around. I depended on his music And after weeks had passed, a dull spot opened and I ached with a surprising poignancy for Shemengua's loss, which I honestly shared. So I had to seek him out and sit with him as if it would help to mourn the absence of his music together. One thing I wanted to know, too, was whether, if his violin did not turn up, we could get together and buy him a new and perhaps even a better instrument. I hesitated to ask him, as though my offer was a selfish thing. I didn't know. So I sat in Shemengua's little front room one afternoon and I tried to find an opening. Geraldine was there. You stay sitting, I'll boil the tea, she said. No one ever argued with her. Shemengua lowered himself into a padded brown rocking chair and gazed at me or past me. And I soon understood that although he spoke quietly and answered questions, he was not fully engaged. In fact, he was only half present and somewhat disheveled, irritable, neither of which I'd ever seen in him. His shirt was buttoned wrong, the plaid askew. He hadn't shaved that morning and the white stubble stood out against his skin. He didn't seem glad at all that I had come. 
We sat in a challenging silence until Geraldine brought those mugs of hot sugar tea. Shemingua's hand shook as he lifted the cup, but he drank. And his face cleared a bit as the tea went down, and I decided there'd be no better time to put forth my idea. Uncle, I said, we would like to buy a new fiddle for you. Shemingua took another drink of his tea, but said nothing, put down the cup, and folded his hands in his lap. He looked past me and frowned in a thoughtful way. I didn't think this was a very good sign. Wouldn't he like a new violin, I said to Geraldine. She shook her head, as if she was now both annoyed with me and exasperated with her uncle. We sat in silence. I didn't know where to go from there. Shemengua had closed his eyes. He leaned far back in his chair, but he wasn't asleep. I thought he might be trying to get rid of me. But I was stubborn. I'm a judge. I didn't want to go. I wanted to hear Shemengua's music again. Oh, tell him about it, Uncle, Geraldine said at last. Shemengua leaned forward, bent his head over his hands as though he was praying. And I relaxed now and understood that I was going to hear something. It was that breathless gathering moment I've known just before composure cracks, the witness breaks, the truth comes out, the unsaid is finally heard. I'm familiar with it, and although this was not exactly a confession, it was, as it turned out, something not generally known on the reservation. Shemengua had owned his fiddle for such a long while that nobody knew or remembered anyway a time when he had been without it. But there actually had been two fiddles in his life. There was his father's fiddle, which he played while he was a boy, and there was another which came to him in a dream. My mother lost a baby boy to diphtheria when I was but four years old, said Shemengua to me and Geraldine. And it was that loss that turned my mother strictly to the church before that. I remember my father playing chansons, reels, jigs, but after the baby's death, my mother made him put down that fiddle and take up the Holy Communion. And we moved off our allotment and right here into town. Now my mother, out of grief, became rigid, tightly ordered with my father and my older brother and sister and me. We understood why she held to strange laws and we let her rule us but we all thought she would relent once that first year of mourning was up. Where before we'd had a lively house, the people liked to visit, now there was quiet, no wine, no music. We kept our voices down because the noise hurt her, she said. Now, I don't believe my mother meant to change things so, but she and my father had lost everything once already, and this this sorrow she bore was beyond her strength, as though her heart was buried underneath that little stone as well. She turned cold, turned away from the rest of us, 
lost her feelings. Now that I'm old and I know the ways of grief, I understand that she felt too much, loved too hard, was afraid to lose us as she had lost my brother. But to a little boy, these things are hidden. It only seemed to me that along with that baby, I had lost her love. Her strong arms and kisses and the clean soap smell of her face, her voice calming me, all that was gone. She was like a statue in the church. Every so often we find her in the kitchen standing still, staring through the wall. And at first we touched her hair, her clothes. My father kissed her and, and combed her hair. She was a traditional and in the traditional way, she'd cut off all her hair in mourning, and her hair just stood out in a bushy halo. But later, after we'd given up, we just walked around her as you would a stump. Our oldest, my half-brother, came and visited and took my brother away. My sister took up the cooking. My father became a silent, empty ear, and gradually we accepted that the lively, loving mother we'd known wasn't coming back. We didn't try and coax her out of that darkness. More often, she'd now spend her time in church. She attended Mass every day and stayed on, her ivory and silver rosary draped in her right fist, her left hand wearing those beads smoother, smaller, until I thought for sure they'd disappear between her fingers. I became restless. I wanted to run away. Then one day, I pretended I was sick with a cough and let them go to church. I began to poke around while they were gone, and soon enough, I came across the fiddle that my mother had forced my father to stop playing. So there it was. I was alone with it now. I was five or six years old, but I could balance the fiddle, and before all this, I'd seen my father use the bow, and that day, I got sound out of it, all right, nothing satisfactory, but that noise made my bones shiver. I put the fiddle back carefully, well before they came home, and climbed under the blankets, not because I wanted to keep up so badly that appearance of being sick, but because because something had happened. Something had changed and disrupted the nature of all that I knew. You might think it had to do with my mother or my brother dying or my other brother running away, but no, this deep thing had to do with the fiddle. Freedom, I found, is not only in the running, but in the heart, the mind, the hands. And after that day, I contrived as often as I could to stay alone in the house. And after everyone was gone, I took that fiddle from its hidden place, and I tuned it to my own liking, and I learned how to play it one note at a time, not that I had a name for the sounds. And I started to fit these sounds together. The string of notes I made itched my brain. And it became a torment for me to have to put away the fiddle when my parents or sister came home. Sometimes, if the wind was right, I sneaked the fiddle out of the house and played in the woods. Some of my songs mimicked the wind. I was always careful that my music should be carried away from the house. But one day, the wind might have shifted 
or my mother's ears were more sensitive, because when I came back into the house, I found her staring out the window to the west where I'd been, and she was excited, breathing fast. Did you hear it? She cried out. Did you hear it? Terrified to be discovered, I said no. She was very agitated, and my father couldn't calm her down. And after he finally had her asleep, he put his head down in his hands and sat there at the table. I tiptoed around and did the chores. I felt awful not to tell him that my music was the source of what she heard, because even then, I understood that my father despaired sitting there in the lamplight. I knew that his despair had to do with my mother and my secret music, and that he thought she had heard something that she had not. But now, as I look back, I consider my silence the first decision I made as a true musician, an artist, that I must play was more important to me than my father's pain. I said nothing and was all the more secretive. It was a question of survival after all. If I hadn't found the music, I would have died of the silence. The rule of quiet in the house became more rigorous. I was still a child, and if my mother and father sat for hours uttering no word, where was I to go but to the music? As of yet, nobody had thought of school. The stillness in my mother infected my father. And there are ways of being abandoned, even when your parents are right there. We had two cows. I did the milking, which was lucky, because if they forgot to feed me, at least I had a bucket of warm, foamy milk. I can't say I ever really suffered from a stomach kind of hunger, but another kind of hunger bit me, a human hunger. I was lonely. About this time, I received a terrible kick from the cow. An accident. She was usually mild. She caught my arm painful. Oh, it was, I remember. But my parents didn't think to take me to a doctor. The pain kept me awake at night. I know that when I couldn't distract myself, I moaned in my blankets by the stove. But much worse than that was the uselessness of the arm in playing the fiddle. I tried to prop it up, but it fell like a rag doll arm. And I finally hit upon this solution, a strip of cloth that I have used ever since. I had, of course, no idea that it would heal that way and become permanent. I only knew that with the arm securely tied up, I could play, and that I could play saved my life. So I was, like most artists, deformed by my art. I was shaped. There was bound to come a time, though, when I slipped up. It didn't come for a while till I was 12 years old. My father and mother had gotten used to our strangeness by then, and I went to school, and I was given this name, Shemengwa, by the full-blood children. It was a kindness, really. The name means the monarch butterfly, and they wanted to give me a beautiful name to help me with what they called my wing arm. I didn't have many friends, human friends. My true friend was hidden in the blanket chest anyway, the only friend I really needed. 
and then I lost that friend. My parents had gone to church that day, and there was some problem with the stove. Smoke had filled the nave, and they came in when I was deep in my playing and listened, standing by the door, surprised by what they heard. But I hadn't heard the door open, and I only noticed when a cold breeze blew in. We stared at one another in shocked gravity, and my father broke the silence at last by asking, How long? I did not answer, but I wanted to. Seven years. Seven years. He let my mother in, and they shut the door behind them. And then he said in a voice of troubled softness, Keep on. So I did play, and when I quit, he said nothing. Discovered, I thought the worst was over, and I put the fiddle away that night. But next morning, waking to a silence where I usually heard my father's noises, I knew the worst was yet to come. My playing had woke something in him. That's what I think. That's the reason he left. But I don't know why he had to take the violin. When I opened the blanket box and saw it was missing, all breath left me, all thought, all feeling. And for months after that, I was the same as my mother. In our loss, we were cut off from all the true, bright, normal routines of living. And I might have stayed that way, gone deeper into the silence, joined my mother on that dark bench from which she could not return, lived on in a diminished form, except that I had a dream. And that dream was simple, a voice, Go to the lake and sit by the southern rock. Wait there. I will come. I decided to follow these direct orders. I took my bedroll, a scrap of jerky, some bannock, and sat myself down on the scabby gray lichen of the southern rock. That plate of stone juts out in the water, which drops deeply off its edges into a green-black depth. From that rock, I could see all that happened on the water. I put tobacco down for the spirits. And all day I sat there waiting. Flies bit me. The wind boomed in my ears. Nothing happened. I curled up and stayed the next morning and the next day, too. It was the first time I'd ever slept out on the shores, and I began to understand why people said of our lake that there is no end to it, when, of course, I thought it was bounded by the rocks. But there were rivers flowing in and flowing out, secret currents, six kinds of weather working on its surface in a hidden terrain underneath. Each wave washed in from somewhere unseen and washed right out again to go somewhere unknown. I saw birds, unfamiliar, passing through on their way to somewhere else. Listening to the water, another music, I was for the first time comforted by sounds other than my fiddle playing. I let go. I nibbled bannock, drank lake water, rolled in my blanket. I saw three dawns. And for three nights, I watched the stars take their place in the crackling black heavens. 
I thought I might just stay there forever, staring at the blue thread of the horizon. Nothing mattered. When a small bit of the horizon's thread detached, darkened, proceeded forward slowly, I observed it only with mild interest. The specks seemed both to advance and retreat. It wavered back and forth. I lost sight of it for long stretches, and then it popped closer over a wave. It was a canoe, but either the paddler was asleep in the bottom or the canoe was drifting. As it came closer, I decided for sure it must be adrift. It rode so light in the waves, nosing this way, then the other, but always, no matter how hesitant or contradictory, it ended up advancing straight toward the southern rock, straight toward me. I watched until I could clearly see there was nobody in it before I recalled why I had come to this place. And the words of my dream returned, I will come to you. I dove in eagerly, swam for the canoe. This arm does not prevent that. I've learned as boys do to compensate, and although my stroke was peculiar, I was strong. I thought perhaps the canoe had been badly tied and slipped its mooring, but no rope trailed. The canoe had lost its paddler somehow, gotten away from its master. Perhaps high waves had coaxed it off a beach where its owner had dragged it up, thinking it safe. I somehow pushed the canoe ashore, then pulled it up behind me, wedged it in a cleft between two rocks. Only then did I look inside at the gear it held, and there, lashed to a cross piece in the bow, was a black case of womanly shape that fastened on the side with two brass locks. That is how my fiddle came to me, said Shemengwa, raising his head to look steadily at me. He smiled, shook his fine head, and spoke softly. And that is why no other fiddle will I play. Well, it's great to see everybody here tonight. And it's wonderful to meet Louise Erdrich. Well, I've been a fan you, of your Laura. book, so thank, thank you. you so it's much. Good, to, good to have you here. Thank you. And Louise, just to start off, your book has been called A Quintessentially American Story. What's quintessentially American about this book? Well, you know, you think about it, anything that happens in all the Americas is quintessentially American. So I'm not sure if that really tells you anything about it at all. But sometimes I think that when something happens in the heartland, it seems more American. <laughs> I don't know. It's not true, though. What's American about it is that some of the things that happen happen to people who are a mixture of native and non-native. And it's about a reservation and a town right off a reservation. It's about the United States in a very big way. That mixing of cultures, that blending of European and native and black and Latino, 
a lot more under the surface than we realize. I don't know. I, th I think it's right on the surface. I think that now that people have been here and been, you know, as the judge here says, we want to be together. This is what we are. And this is what our country is becoming. And this is what we accept. This is what I think we're starting to accept here, that we're a mixture, that we're so many different things. And that's what the book really is about. Well, besides a really good, satisfying read, and it is, what Thank else you. do you hope people get out of it? There is something that I've come to hope about it. When I started it, I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know I was even writing a, a novel, actually. I was working on something else, a science fiction novel. But, you know, after you write a book, you go and you talk about the book, which I'm not very prepared to do usually. But as I've thought about it, I thought, you know, this book is about a thirst for vengeance. It's about a thirst for retribution. It's about this mentality that caused a group of people to lynch a, three native men in Emmons County, North Dakota in 1897. So it was a fact that haunted me. The other three were exonerated in an actual trial. It's about that thirst for vengeance that I think is easily excited in all of us. And I think it has been, even in very recent times, that we have somehow in our country, we've wanted vengeance, but we haven't sat still long enough to think a lot about justice. This book itself is about what vengeance and not justice does to two small communities and how when justice does not occur and when only vengeance becomes the rule, how things become dysfunctional and people don't understand where the hatred is going even where the love is going, where the passions lie, because that particular sense of justice is missing from an occurrence. And I think we've missed out on justice here in our country. Do Native American readers come away with this book with something different than a general public audience? I think people very well may because there's some parts of the humor or there's some pieces of language that Native people may understand. But in this book in particular, it is really, I wrote a mystery. I didn't realize I was writing one. I had to go back and put in the clues after. <laughs> I, no, I, real, I got to the end and I realized I'd written something that I, I hadn't written before. Are your Native readers harder on you than your general American white readers? I don't think so. If they, they expect but see, more from but you. But see, Native people are very polite in general. So, so they maybe may they don't be, like it. <laughs> but I don't, he, you know, I don't hear a lot about that. But no, I try to be as true as I can for Native readers. But I also have to be true to the writing. Foremost, it has to be the writing and the story. The story has to be there. This story was very hard to approach, and it was about 20 years before I could really deal with these particular incidents. Um, I'm, I'm not a writer who usually writes this sort of book. So it took me a long time to try and do it right. You mentioned a moment ago, Louise, um, humor is a key part of Native American literature. You told one interviewer, it's impossible to write about Native life without humor. 
How do you characterize that Native American humor as it appears in your books? It's called survival humor. And I've always found that if I'm in a Native group with people of whatever tribe, that within moments everybody is laughing. And I've never stopped to think exactly why that is. Why are people so funny? What is it? But it's true. And there's just an enormous sort of self-deprecating wit about tribal people. And I think part of it is a way of surviving. But part of it's, it's cultural. It's a way of seeing the world with a sense of irony, a slight distance. But also, I think the humor is also very loving. There's a lot of humor based on the Native relationship with the Catholic Church. In this book and in your other books. You're right. Well, that's um, true, they yeah. have a lot of fun at the expense of the local priest. What's that about, Louise? Why this sort of conflict between the Catholic Church and the natives in your stories? Well, every priest on a reservation gets a nickname. The priest in this is named Father Cassidy, and because he likes to go and kind of pop on his toes while he sprinkles holy water on people, his, his name is Hopalong. <laughs> and it's true. Everybody, you know, everybody knows this. There's another nun who rather heartbreakingly is nicknamed Sister Godzilla. Why? Why, you ask? <laughs> if I went into all the historical reasons, it would take up the rest of the show. But let me just say that there is a great range of reactions to the Catholic Church on the reservation. In my particular community, people are very devout, and yet they are very funny about the church sometimes as well. In other places, you know, you've seen the most painful sorts of lives that have been diminished or changed by the way the church has treated Native people. So that I'm just saying there's a range of ways. I think that humor is the best way to deal with the Catholic Church. <laughs> Louise, one writer that you've said you admire, Toni Morrison, says she really doesn't like being labeled a black writer. How do you feel about being labeled a Native American writer? Well, I'm also a bookseller. <laughs> and I realize that people need to have some direction when they want to read a book. I don't feel the least one way or the other about it, actually. I feel like it's useful for people in an academic setting so that they can teach courses. <laughs> I really don't mind, and I'm very proud as an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band to be able to say that I'm doing something, you know, that I'm, I'm writing books. Not that everybody's going to like them, but again, if in other venues I get to be quintessentially American, what's wrong with that? Woman, mother, writer. I mean, you know, there's just, they, people just have to use labels. I don't know why. Why do you suppose Native Americans are less represented in the pantheon of American literature? Well, number one, nine out of every ten Native persons died before European people ever saw a Native person in this country. 
these were old world diseases swept through our people in a way that I cannot even begin to describe to you or to anyone. So that we have only begun to recover. And I'm a mixed blood person, you know, I'm German, I'm French, and I'm native, and I'm part of all of these backgrounds. But I'm very proud to have been part of these people who survived this incredible onslaught, not only of the diseases, but of the forced assimilation, of the theft of land, I mean, you know, of everything. You know, we, th this incredible history. So I'm seeing now an, an amazing renaissance. That's why I have this bookstore, Birchbark Books, which is much of our work is devoted to the renaissance of Native American writers. And there's so many wonderful writers who are coming up, Sherman Alexie, Eric Gansworth, Kim Blazer, Leslie Silkel, wonderful writers, Linda Hogan, who are beginning to write the stories, not of Native America, but of their particular tribes, their tribes, their tribal ways, voices, language. It's all a whole different world. My background on my mother's side is as different from Dakota or Abnaki person or a Narragansett or a Wampanoag person as a person from China is from a person from France. These are such different life ways in their origins. So I'm so proud to see that this is happening now. You mentioned your bookstore. We have a question from the audience about the store that you run, Birchbark Books. Can you talk about your experience operating your bookstore and how you coordinate operating it with your writing career? It's a good question. I had the same question, too. I have wonderful people managing the store, including my daughter, working at the store, figuring out how to make a small bookstore work. I started it with my daughters, who have all worked there, but I could no more run a bookstore than I could restore this beautiful space. <laughs> I could not do it. It's beyond me, and I knew it was from the beginning. But I thought it was important to have a focus for Native people there in Minneapolis. We have a, an amazing population there, and I just love small bookstores. I just love to be in a small bookstore. Or a, that's part of what I wanted to make for other people, a place that it was like a home, but you were surrounded by books, and that you're going to be in the flow, the in and out flow of books, and that you go in and that you talk about books. We've got a confessional, too, in case people <laughs> need. <laughs> Only now it's been rechristened a forgiveness booth. <laughs> Does owning a bookstore kind of give you a leg up as an author? I mean, a little better understanding of what the stores want and what the reading public wants? No. Um, <laughs> I write for the writing. The one thing it does do is it gives me an enormous love and sympathy of everyone who's in the book business. And it's not, you know, a business I used to think was a cold thing. Running a bookstore, having a bookstore being in the book world, everyone, and being in any part of book, bookiness, is an act of love. And everybody who's out there is here because they love reading. And I say to we're fewer and fewer people are loving to read. Come on, let's be together. I love being out now and, and meeting other book people, wherever they are. It means a great deal to me. Thank you.
Since Fred is on a New England stage is an author series. We have a lot of writers and aspiring writers in our audience tonight. And I want to ask you, Louise, a couple questions about your own writing process. Here's one from our, our audience. First of all, when did you know you were a writer? Well, my father paid me a nickel every time I wrote a story. <laughs> I've said that many times, and I thought, I'm, I'm a writer. And I'm, I've got enough, you know, I've got enough, at the time, Nick, popsicles were a nickel. It was great. Not long ago, he gave me a whole roll of nickels. He said, I owe you. <laughs> <laughs> so bribery works. It wasn't bribery. It was my father acknowledging that what I did had worth. Because a nickel was a lot for us, you know, at that time. Here's another person who wants to know what your basic writing process is. Well, as you all know, I have a daughter. Her name is Gijanina Gijagok, so, which in Ojibwe means healing sky woman. She goes to school. I bring her to school. I have three older daughters as well. After I bring her to school, I try so hard not to clean the house. That's my big struggle. I try to walk past everything, go away, get upstairs, and just sit down with whatever I'm working on. And I write by hand, and I've always written by hand. After I write a book, I like to have a handwritten version of my book. I used to collect old paper, and when I lived in New Hampshire, very wonderful man, Alex McKenzie, used to send me, uh, he sent me a sheaf of, sheafs of old paper. So I have some manuscripts that are just beautiful, different kinds of paper. And now I write in books that I collage and I draw in the books. And I, I just love to have this object. It's like an art object to me. And then I after I write it, I type it into the computer. I have one of those Jetson computers, you know, those iMacs. It's not hooked up to the internet, whatever. But I use it as a word processor, and that's where I do my revisions. But I revise everything by hand. I just need it all by hand. I think it's because I started as a, as a poet, so that I wrote line by line. Speaking of revising, I heard that you revise extensively. Is that yes. true extensively? And if so, how come? Because I, I'm a bad, you know, first drafter. <laughs> <laughs> but I do revise extensively. I'm, I'm always working and reworking. And this particular book, the reason it took so long to write was because I, I just couldn't get it down right. I couldn't get to the material. Some of it was wonderful material and some of it was painful material. So I had to pretend in my head that I was writing this science fiction novel I mentioned, which got to be 400 pages long before I realized I was really working on The Plague of Doves, this other book. And when I realized I was working on it, I spread it all out, and I looked at it, and there was about three months of utter joy as I put it all together and I understood it. And then there was a couple more years of torment as... I try, tried to get that right. You're known for this technique of using multiple narrators, and you certainly do that in Plague of Doves. I've seen it. you do it in other books, too. 
lots of different people to tell a story. In Plague of Dogs, I, I think there's four people telling a story. Mm -hmm. What attracts you to writing that way? And is it harder than choosing a single person to tell a story? I always want to choose one person to tell a story. But there's so many ways of seeing it. And then I think, if you were standing over there, you'd see it differently. And I really don't control how the story comes out. And I feel that when I'm really writing, when I'm really in my world, I'm writing whatever's coming to me. If I stay receptive, I'm there waiting for the character to tell me how to write, what to say. And I'm not really in control of it. We've got a question from the audience about your characters. And some of them, we should let people know, show up in different books. Mm -hmm. This person wants to know, which of your many vibrant, funny, tough characters do you most wish existed? Well, I think I wish Nana Push was really here. Nana Push is something like there's a grandfather. Musham is the word for grandpa in, in Michif language. And he's also someone I wish really was here. But he's something like my own uncles and grandfather. So when I write these characters, some of these people who can make fun of everything and who can be outrageous in their age, I feel that they really exist somewhere and that I'll meet them someday. Here's another person. They want to know, tell us about your connection to New Hampshire. I left North Dakota when I was 18. I'd never been away before. My parents had never been to Minneapolis, which was huge, and put me on an airplane, and I flew out. And I still remember that I got to Boston. I got in a tiny plane, and I don't know how I had the guts to do it. I can't do it now. And <laughs> got in, and there were also uh, a load of baby chicks in the back. And every time we went over, you know, those bumps in the air as they came up off the hills, the chicks would go beep, 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 I thought, where on earth am I going? Where am I going? And I ended up at Dartmouth College. What was that like? I mean, to be the vanguard of the first class that allowed women. I mean, that must have been really something. It was the first class of women, and it was the first class in which there was a Native American studies program. And my mother had found out about these things by reading the National Geographic. She'd seen a picture of the ice sculpture at Dartmouth. <laughs> and she thought that was wonderful. We were in North Dakota. <laughs> and she thought, and then she read something about the original intent of the college. And she found out. My high school counselor discouraged me, actually, from going. But she insisted that I complete an application. And terrified, I did go. When I got there, I didn't know what to make of it. Being in the first class that was co-education -ed was really nothing compared to the strangeness of New England to me. The surprise, I'd never been in a place with hills, this kind of hills. You know, it was water coursing down the sides of hillsides. I was from a very flat, completely flat part of North Dakota. I couldn't believe people lived. It seemed like a tiny spot of paradise. 
And I went up into the White Mountains. I'd never been in mountains before. So it took me for a while to understand that there weren't very many women around. <laughs> and that was just part of everything. <laughs> no. And I'll tell you, you know, this Dartmouth at the time, you know, a lot of, it was hard for a lot of women to be there. I, however, uh, stuck with the fringe element. I went on to Frat Row once. I walked down Frat Row. I saw a burning mattress come flying out of the third floor window, land on the road before me, and I turned around and I never went back. <laughs> and I had a wonderful time there. I had a wonderful time. You know, you said that the landscape was just blew your mind when you got yeah, here compared to did. North Dakota. Um, and I've heard you say, though, in several interviews that although you came to appreciate the beauty of New Hampshire, you never understood the people. What was it that you didn't understand? I didn't understand where people originally came from. You know, I'd known where every single person in my town came from, what their background was. You know, I knew Native people, I knew German, and I knew Scandinavian people, and that was it. Now, I didn't know any other kind of people. I didn't know... New England people, and I didn't know people when I was at Dartmouth. I didn't know what a prep school was. I didn't know. I really didn't even know what money was, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know. I didn't know what being Jewish was. I didn't know what being anything but my little world was. So I simply remained silent and watched for many years that while I was there. I think people thought that I really maybe couldn't speak at all. I didn't, didn't talk at all. Just didn't talk. Could these stories that you write, Louise, about the intermingling of Europeans and Native Americans and all the irony and the love and the violence and so forth um, that you've written about, could these stories have been written in New England? Yes. You know, I lived in Cornish. I should go on to say that was just the college experience. I lived in Cornish, New Hampshire, and there's someone here who is a neighbor who went to school with some of my children. And as I lived here longer, I grew to really love it and love the people around me. And I had wonderful neighbors. I lived on a small road. The book, The Painted Drum, is about that landscape and about that way of life. I began to understand it. The more I was here, the more I loved it, the more I valued it. I loved, I loved the woods. I mean, I, I hate being here, not being able to go out into the woods here. It's extraordinary. I've got one last question uh, for you from our audience again. This person wants to know, what's next? And will you be writing more in your next novel about familiar characters or focusing more on new ones? Well, the science fiction is still sitting there. <laughs> and... Uh, Next, I have a collection of short stories because I, there are the stories that made their way into books, but they were very different as stories when I first published them, and then some new stories. And after that, I really don't know what's next. As I said, that science fiction novel is just haunting. I'm sitting there. I don't know. I want to give a very special thank you to our guest tonight, Louise Erdrich. It's good to talk to you. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Laura.